my mic working okay? Everybody good? So I don't want to bury the lead. I'm going to go ahead and come on out with it in the introduction. In this fallen world, this side of the resurrection, we will suffer. So say that again. It's not something we like to hear. But in this fallen world, this side of the resurrection, we will suffer. We will experience pain. And we will go through trials. Things will not always, or maybe even often, go the way that we want them to go. We live in a world where we bury our children. Where even really good things fall apart. And only an insane person would then look around and say that everything is as it should be. And yet, God and truth remain. God has not left us to fend for ourselves. He has given us His Word. He has given us His testimony. Now, He has not, this is important, He has not given us His Word and His testimony to just make us feel better. We will get all kinds of messed up and tripped up if that's what we think. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. In Christ, saints, we have an unshakable hope. We have a future. You see, the Lord's book, the Lord's word, his testimony is about that hope. It's about that future. It's about redemption. It's about the great salvation that Christ has already accomplished for us and the great salvation that will finally, ultimately, be revealed to us when He returns. So with all of that in mind, with that being the lenses through which we will look to the Word. Open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be looking today at Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. This is the second of five sermons that are planned through this wonderful, short Old Testament book of Ruth. Then we're going to be considering verses 6 to 22 today. I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 1. So Ruth 1, beginning in verse 1. Listen as I read. This is God's Word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab 
For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, to return from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. We thank God for His Word. My plan for us today is to preach the text in two points and then offer a closing reflection. Particularly in point two, it's long, and it contains a lot of reflection and application within it. So two points and a reflection at the end. Point one, returning to Judah. Point one, returning to Judah. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18 together. In verse 6, we read that Naomi had heard that the Lord had visited his people to give them food. You remember from last week, and we read it again today, that there was a famine in the land of Judah. There was no food in Bethlehem. We thought last week about how famine was a covenant curse of God upon his people for disobedience to the Torah, to the law. One of the ways that the Lord said He would punish His people for disobeying the law was to make the sky above them like bronze and the earth beneath them like iron. In other words, it would bear no food. You could see, for further reference, 
Leviticus chapter 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28 were a lengthy list of some of these covenant curses and punishments that would associate the breaking of the Mosaic law. We talked about last time how not only is there a famine going on, this was during the time when the judges ruled. This was a time of disobedience and apostasy amongst the people of God. This was a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in case anybody's wondering, that's not good. That's not a good thing that we would do what is right in our own eyes. We tend to think that we make things better and that we're good at fixing problems. We're not. Whenever we do this, what's right in our own eyes, we make things a whole lot worse, not better. So under the Mosaic Covenant, there is a famine in the land of Judah, in Bethlehem. The irony of this is that Bethlehem means house of bread. There's no grain in the house of bread when Ruth begins. But Naomi, in a foreign land, hears. She hears that the Lord has visited His people and that He has given them food. God has restocked the shelves in the house of bread. There's going to be a harvest again. Maybe for the first time in some years. And the Lord has done that. That's the clear witness of the Scripture. And so, Naomi is going to return to Bethlehem after a number of years have passed. It's pretty cool. The Lord visited His people and somehow in his providence, Naomi heard about it. In the fields of Moab, she heard it. Verse 7, Naomi sets out with her two daughters-in-law, with Orpah and with Ruth. They're going to head toward the land of Judah. Then in verse 8, it's kind of an interruption, at least figuratively in the journey. And Naomi is going to encourage Ruth and Orpah to go home to Moab. Go back to your people. She continues on in verse 9. May they each find rest in the house of their husband. Now this theme of finding rest is going to resurface in chapter 3. So just kind of put a pin in that in your mind. Finding rest in a Redeemer. I'll say more about that in a few weeks. In verse 10, Ruth and Orpah say No. Naomi, no, we want to return with you to your people. And then in verses 11 to 13, Naomi's going to lean on them some more. She's going to double down. Don't come with me. She's concerned, at least in ways, for their well-being and exhorts them again to go back to their own homeland and to find husbands and have families and do all these things. She says, No, my daughters. Verse 13, Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. These are strong words. Like, God is against me. That language of the hand of God is against me is like literally could be rendered like God has assaulted me. He has attacked me. Like, He has put His hands in my face like one might do in combat. It's bitter for me. And it's bitter for you that God has assaulted me this way. And I want to free you, Ruth and Orpah, from this. You have no obligation to me. 
if you come with me, there will be no prospects of marriage or family for you. Go home. Please, go home to your people and start over. You've got a chance for a fresh start there. Then in verse 14, the daughters-in-law engage again, and there's weeping. I think sometimes we, in reading narrative, historical narrative in the Scriptures, we can kind of divorce ourselves a little bit from the human experience of this. This is intense. These women had been together for years. They had been through some hard things together. Deaths of husbands, deaths of sons, right? They'd been through a lot. Of course, there's weeping over this whole thing. We're told that Orpah does kiss Naomi and departs. We're not told how long that took. But Ruth, for her part, clings to Naomi. The language is that of cleaving. So think Genesis 2. Adam would cleave unto his wife. And then in verse 15, Naomi again to Ruth is going to say, look, your sister-in-law has made the right decision. She's headed back to Moab. You should go back too. Then in verses 16 and 17, Ruth speaks some pretty remarkable words. I mean, our marriage vows in part in weddings are based upon some of this language. She's persistent, Ruth is. She says, you can put your eyes on verses 16 and 17, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death departs me or parts me, excuse me, from you. Remarkable words. We should extol them. Ruth expresses loyalty, love to her mother-in-law. At a human level, I mean, this is an expression at a human level of nothing other than steadfast love. It's a striking commitment. Even if Ruth were an Israelite, it would be a striking commitment. But given the fact that she's a foreigner, even more so, in terms of her life on earth, she had no reason to think that there was anything for her in Bethlehem. It's also clear in her words that she has an awareness of the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. She says to Naomi, your people will be my people and your God, my God. And then even invokes the covenant name of the Lord in saying, may the Lord do so to me and more also if I leave you. Now in chapter 2, in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that other people are going to observe Ruth's love toward Naomi and are going to observe her trust in the Lord. Not going to steal next week's thunder at much length, but look at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. When Boaz shows up on the scene, his first words with Ruth, he says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Pretty strong. 
Then in verse 18, back in Ruth chapter 1, when Naomi sees how determined Ruth is, I mean, for the better part of what? A dozen verses, she's been leaning, you need to go back. Naomi has been persistent in saying, you need to go back to Moab. You don't need to come with me. Finally, when she sees how determined Ruth is, she stops talking. But this is not one of those things where like Naomi is just joyfully convinced. It's not the vibe here. The vibe is more like, okay, fine, I, Ruth, I can see you're dug in on this, so I'm, just, I'm done talking about it. I'm just not going to say anything else. It's what the language even communicates. In other words, Naomi is not overcome by Ruth's moving commitment to her. I mean, this is where she is, her station in life. We've thought about some of her bitterness. We're going to think more about it today. It's like, okay, we're done here. I'm not going to talk about this anymore. Let's just go. Which brings us now to point two. So the first point, returning to Judah. Point two, arriving in Bethlehem. Point two, arriving in Bethlehem. We're going to look briefly at verses 19 through 22. Again, there's going to be a number of reflections, though, and application throughout this portion. So settle in. Verse 19, Naomi and Ruth, they travel to Bethlehem. And when they get there, the whole town is in an uproar. It's a buzz, right, as they arrive. Naomi, remember, she's been gone a long time. This would not have been a huge town, right? People would have known each other. She's been gone a long time. They had lived, remember, in Moab for 10 years, even after the two sons got married. And they had lived there for some time before Elimelech even died in the first place. It's been probably the better part of two decades or more that they've been away. Her husband, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, is not with her. Neither are her sons. She had all of those people with her when she left Bethlehem. And it's possible that these people would have heard of the death of Elimelech and the death of Malon and Kilion. It's possible. It's possible that people thought after this many years that they'd never see Naomi again. Yet here she is. And she has this younger foreign woman with her. And everybody's like, in the verse 19, is this Naomi? Girl, we ain't seen you in a while. Is this Naomi? Then in verses 20 and 21, Naomi is going to respond to the people of Bethlehem. She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Her reasoning for that is that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she says. Wouldn't even be appropriate for you to call me Naomi, a name that means pleasant, when God has done this to me. I went away full, she said, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's like, look, the Lord Himself has not only dealt bitterly with me, He has emptied me and He has quite literally taken the stand to testify against me. He's attacked me. Let's reflect together for a minute and just consider Naomi. As I mentioned last week, this book is called Ruth for good reason. But Naomi's story is very front and center throughout this entire narrative. And what the Lord is going to do in Naomi, for Naomi, on behalf of Naomi, 
through her. So Naomi, with her husband and her sons, had left the land of God. We talked last week about how that was a theological decision in this era of redemptive history. She had left God and the land of God to go eat somewhere else. She stays there for a while, but then she's like, you know, this isn't going so well. And I've heard that the Lord is blessing his people, so I think I'm going to go back. But then she shows up back in Bethlehem, indignant with God. Her heart is hard and bitter toward him. She, on the one hand, acknowledges his power and his sovereignty in her life, but in her eyes, that is not a good thing. It is a hard and bitter thing. She resents it, it seems. Everything has gone poorly for her in Moab. She's mad. Think about this reality, right? She's mad that a foreign country outside of God's promised land turned out, in fact, to be a wilderness. And she blames God for that. Now, pause button, time out. None of what I've just said is meant to just be unnecessarily hard on Naomi. That is not the point. The point is this is us. Yeah, like, own this. This is us. It's how we are. We are like Naomi. And with all due respect, I'm speaking to myself too. With all due respect, if we do not see ourselves in Naomi, we are completely lacking in self-awareness. And just like Naomi, we are blind to our own culpability in it. There's no acknowledgement of our own responsibility except maybe in a cursory way. This is on God from our perspective when everything falls apart. Another observation. Not necessarily a flattering one either for Naomi or us. So she's upset with God, but she's not, at least in the text, right? She's not talking to the Lord about it. She's talking about Him and how harsh He is to other people. We are prone to do the same thing. We grumble against the Lord. So like, real, real talk. Life on earth. We have times when we are really low. When we are at rock bottom. We're hurting. We're despairing. We're even angry with God. When we are so low that like Job, we curse the day we were born, which he does for an entire chapter, Job 3. Eventually we'll preach the book of Job and look forward to that day. Because a lot of times people read the first two chapters and then skip to chapter 38. There are dozens of chapters literally between chapter 2 and chapter 38 that is full of wrestling. And it's instructive for us. But here's the thing. God, because this is how He is, He is so good, He is so kind, has given us words to speak to Him when we are in despair. He has given us words to speak when we are even angry with Him. They're called Psalms. And they are replete with lament and grief and even complaint. The Lord is so good and so kind. He knows there will be times in this fallen world where we will think 
and feel these ways. And he has not left us without a witness. May this be an exhortation to us all. I was struck by this and convicted by it as I was working on this this week. When we are hurting and when we are upset with God, by all means, like, let's listen. Let's not be poor counselors like Job's friends presuming to say too much. Let's listen. And when we go to encourage, let's encourage one another in this. Hey, why don't we, why don't we read and pray some psalms together? Words like these. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 13. Or these. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has His steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? As he in anger shut up his compassion. Psalm 77. For these, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes to you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors and I am helpless. Psalm 88. These psalms, and others like them, can rightly be understood to be the prayers of Christ in His suffering, betrayal, and death. And they are inspired of God and immortalized in His Word for our benefit when we suffer. So let's use the words God has given. Let's put some of these words in our mouths and talk to God in the midst of pain. May He give us grace. Another reflection while we're still here. All a piece of point two. Thinking about Naomi and where she is as we find her in chapter one. We know where the story is going. Many are familiar with it. We know what God's going to do. The providence, the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the redemption, they're off the charts, man. We know that. But consider how the Lord works in this woman. He does it in us too. We are like Naomi. We're mad, we're bitter, we're struggling often. And the Lord shows up in our lives. He shows up and He shows us His work in our salvation in the past and right now. And then we, in those moments of grace and clarity, are struck anew perhaps, with how God has saved us and is saving us and will finally save us. And we are blown away by the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God and we are rendered speechless. He does this. His grace and His kindness to us in moments like this quite literally shut our mouths. It's Effectively like a Job 38 kind of moment where God looks at Job and says, child, you don't understand. And we're like, you're right, I don't understand. My perspective is so limited. You, you are God and I'm not. And you 
are my Redeemer. You've shown me that before, and here you are showing me that again. Blessed be the name of the Lord. A sweet thought for you and me. Naomi, in our passage, is bitter, and she's mad at God, and God is not deterred. And he isn't with us either. Amen? Amen. I said this last week, it bears repeating. For everyone sitting here, hearing the sound of my voice this morning, remember this. Grace is not just for those who are outside to bring in. Grace is also for those who have rebelled from the inside to restore. God is good. And He keeps His people. Even when we're mad and we're bitter and we're struggling and we're wandering, He keeps His people. Another reflection. All again, a piece of point two. You hear or read, either one, the words of Naomi herself. She's saying, verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. We've referred to this. We're going to think about it right now. There's a clear theme in the book of Ruth, and I would contend in all of the Bible, that the Lord empties in order to fill. He empties in order to fill. He breaks in order to restore. He crushes in order to save. Theological term for all of us to become acquainted with, a theology of the cross. Just put that in your mind. You can put it in your notes if you're taking them. This that we're about to talk about is a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory that is about us and our progress and our triumph and our experience. This is about Christ. This is about law and gospel. This is about suffering and pain and the purposes of a good God. The Lord empties in order to fill. He breaks in order to restore. He crushes in order to save. He does this in a number of ways. We're going to think about two of them today. First, He does this work through circumstance and trial. He does this through circumstance and trial. Last week, I read you the entirety of John Newton's poem turned into a song called, I Ask the Lord. I'm going to summarize a piece of it today and read the last verse. Newton begins the song by praying for grace and by praying for faith. And then he goes on for verses about how, like, God, this is what I prayed for and you've crushed me. Prayed for grace and faith and you've crushed me. I prayed for grace and faith and all you've done is shown me how evil I am and it feels like all I'm being assaulted by are the powers of hell. In other words, it's been hard. I prayed for grace and faith and it's been hard. To which the Lord says in the final verse, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. Crush all thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. God produces steadfastness in his people. How does he do it? He, first of all, does it. We don't do it. He does it. How does he do it? James chapter 1. He often does it through trial. These trials, says the Apostle James, are to test our faith. They are so that we might be made 
perfect and complete, but they are so that we would have steadfastness produced in us. We need to think about this well in the church, and we need to talk about it well in the church. Because there are errors that can be made on either side, and we want to avoid those. We don't want to be people who don't ever talk about the hard things. We don't want to be people who talk about the Christian life as though it is just victory after victory and triumph after triumph, and it's upward and onward and just this linear progression. We don't want to do that. It's not how it goes. At the same time, we don't want to glory over trials in and of themselves. Sometimes, I think, meaning well, we say things that are patently false. Things like cancer and death and the like are not in and of themselves good. They're bad. We should call them that. The trial in and of itself is bad. The miracle is what God does through it. He works through something that is the result of the fall and sin, high level, to produce steadfastness in His children. He does that and should be praised for that work. The thing itself, the circumstance you're in, the trial you are going through, the thing itself may be bad, but saints, God is in it. We've all experienced this, have we not? We have. There's something about us. We are purified. We are sanctified through pain and suffering in ways that we often are not in the good times. Why it is this way? You have to ask the Lord about that. We could surmise, but that's not the point of our time today. So much of this Christian life that we live together in the church is us together doing what? It's learning together to depend on God's grace and to persevere through life's doubts and wrestlings and temptations. Why do we need the church? We need the church for that. So much of this Christian life that we live together in the church is us continuing to trust in God and continuing to hope for the world to come despite the trials and the sufferings of this life. That's why we need the church. That's why we need each other. God, saints, is doing this in us. Producing steadfastness. And this is what He did for Naomi. Not only, though, does God do this emptying in order to fill, breaking in order to restore, crushing in order to save work with circumstance and trial, He does it a second way. So secondly, God does this work in us with His law. He does this work in us with His law. Track with me. He crushes us with the law that we might be saved in Christ. Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 25. You can turn there if you have a Bible with you. I'm turning as I speak. This is a relatively famous parable in this portion of Luke chapter 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Humbly and sincerely, I think sometimes when this parable is preached, it's often divorced from verses 25 through 28 that set the entire context for the thing. Oftentimes the parable 
the takeaway, the takeaway is that we need to love our neighbor, which is absolutely true. But I would contend that there is a takeaway that's even more primary than that. Luke 10 and verse 25. Law and gospel, God crushes in order to save. Here we go. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus says back, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's a good answer. Like, love the Lord. What's in the law, Jesus says. The lawyer, how do I, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus, what's in the law? How do you read it? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says exactly right. You've just summarized the two tables of the law beautifully. Now go and do that, and you'll live. Verse 29. Pivotal. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself according to what? Desiring to justify himself according to the law. Says, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I'm going to litigate with you. I want you to tell me exactly who my neighbor is so that I can go and do what is required of God so that I might live forever. Then, Christ tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then, what's the point above all points of that parable? He's talking to a man, presumably other people too, who are characterized by this posture. Tell me what I need to do Tell me how I can keep the law and we're good. So Christ tells a parable about extravagant love of neighbor on the part of a religious and ethnic half-breed, no less, a Samaritan. So one of the takeaways of that parable is absolutely we should sacrifice and love our neighbor. The takeaway before that, though, is ain't none of y'all done this. Nobody has loved his neighbor like this. You will not be justified by works of the law. Matthew chapter 5. Flip there too. Beginning in verse 17. Greatest sermon on the law ever preached is what? The Sermon on the Mount. Christ begins with some epic words. That word is thrown around too much these days. These are epic words. Beginning in verse 17. Matthew 5. Do not think, says Christ, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Now you want to talk about some context-setting words. Those are some. There. Should drive our exegesis, right? Our understanding of the text. For truly, verse 18, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, salvation is not going to come. Righteousness is not going to come by lowering the standard. It's not going to be how this goes. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we ought never say we, in terms of proving our righteousness, we ought never say, well, don't live a life characterized by sexual sin or don't live a life characterized by anger. That is a relativizing of the law and it is damnable to speak that way. But whoever, says Christ, 
Whoever does these things and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mic drop. What? This is the way we live, Jesus. These are our leaders. These are the experts of the law. These are the righteous ones. And you're telling us we need to be more righteous than them. And then he goes on, as many know, he's going to take two of the commandments of the moral law and expound upon them. You've heard it said, don't be, excuse me, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, you've broken the law. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I'm telling you, heart level, if you've lusted, you've broken the law. What's the point? Friend, we have not kept the law. That's the point. He sums up chapter 5. We could talk about a lot more stuff, but he sums up chapter 5 with these words in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus taught us very clearly in His ministry that we cannot fulfill the law for righteousness. There are many other places we could look. The rich young man, etc., Christ is very clear about this. And the witness of the Scriptures and the witness of the apostles clearly testifies that we cannot fulfill the law for righteousness. Here's the thing. God doesn't just crush. He saves. Jesus not only taught us that we can't keep the law for righteousness, He said that He would fulfill it. He said as well, that he would die for lawbreakers. The obedient one, capital O. The righteous one, capital O. In the place of the unrighteous. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 50. Don't turn, just listen. The Lord God, these are words of God's servant, the servant of the Lord. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. If those are not the words of Jesus, I don't know what are. Luke 9, chapter 51, or verse 51. Luke 9, 51. The apostle writes, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, crucified, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint. Thank God for Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law in its requirement and who fulfilled the law in its punishment. The righteous for the unrighteous. This, saints, is the witness of the Scripture and it is the witness of God's law and God's Gospel. The first and primary use. There are others but the first and primary use of the law is this one. To show us our sin and drive us to Christ. To crush in order to save. 
on the front end of it, like as we are born again, we are convinced that we have no place to stand in our own merit. I've got nothing. And still, for many in this room who are trusting Christ and have been, in an ongoing way, this is our experience. We, to the Lord, say, you know, the law no longer condemns me, but it reminds me regularly. In a gathering like this, for example, every week, that I am still utterly unable to do what it requires in order that I would be righteous. And so what's the takeaway? I cling to Christ. May the law always do that work in us. May we cling to Christ as we consider the law. This is God's work in us. He is near to us and He is good to us in this. He empties in order to fill. He breaks in order to restore. He crushes in order to save. I went away full and I came back empty, says Naomi. But oh beloved, consider what God would do for her. And consider what He's done for us. Amen. Briefly back to the text in Ruth as we finish point two. This will not take long. Put your eyes on verse 22 of Ruth 1. We're going to see a glimmer of hope here. It's been cloudy. It's been dreary. We're going to see some rays. Some divine rays of sunshine breaking through the clouds here. Verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. A glimmer of hope. A divine ray of grace. There is, in fact, grace at rock bottom. There has been famine. Naomi was in a foreign land. She's come home, and there is going to be a harvest. The Lord's face is beginning to shine on His people. Now it's time for a closing reflection. Question for us. It's an important one. I'm using this phrase rock bottom because I think we all know what that means. We are as low as we can get. So, what do you, what do I, what do we have when we're there? What do we have at rock bottom? I would say this, if your theology or even if your worldview, more broadly speaking, cannot speak to that place, it's not worth much. Just existentially, that's true. When everything, though, in our lives, saints, has fallen apart, or perhaps when we have fallen flat on our faces in failure, in sin, what do we have? The good Sunday school answer is the right one here to begin. We have Jesus. We have Christ. Somebody say amen. We have Him. We have His objective, unshakable, saving work in our place. Those words matter. Unshakable, you get it. Can't be shaken. Okay, objective meaning what? It exists outside of us. That means that I don't affect it. It means that the power and the sufficiency of His saving work has nothing to do with me. My feelings, my performance, none of that affects what Christ has done for me. Saints through history have written some incredible words about this. Just listen. Jesus Christ, counting to us all His merits, 
and so many holy works which he has done for us in our place is our righteousness. Amen. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which when they become ours are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. Praise God. Moving on. And therefore, we always hold fast this confession, ascribing all glory to God, humbling ourselves before him, and acknowledging ourselves to be such as we really are, without presuming to trust in anything in ourselves or in any merit of ours, relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, which becomes ours when we believe in him. This is sufficient to cover all our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God. What do we have at rock bottom? We got all that. It's a lot to have. This is like the Heidelberg Catechism question 60. How are you righteous before God? We say by a true faith in Jesus Christ, that though my conscience condemns me, that I have broken all of God's commandments and I've never kept a single one of them and I still struggle mightily against sin, I have been credited with the holiness, satisfaction, and obedience of Jesus Christ by faith. We have that always. May God give us faith to believe that. To trust that. To trust Christ. Saints, look to Christ and take heart that though we each have gone our own way, the Lord has not cut us off. We have been united to Christ and He holds us fast and He does not let us go. If we think that Ruth clung to Naomi, we ain't seen anything compared to how Christ holds us. Amen? Amen. What else do we have though at rock bottom? We have the hope of the world to come. Important. The security we have in Christ, the hope of the world to come, are the greatest and most rock-solid hope a person could ever have. And they are not given, first and foremost, to make you feel better emotionally in any given circumstance. They are given to put rock under your feet and steel in your spine and to give you hope when everything around you is hopeless. Own that. Listen to these words, though. What waits for us? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Or these words. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, 
on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. My, how we need that. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Maybe your heart, saint, is breaking as you sit here today. Maybe things are really hard. And if they're not today, they may very well be tomorrow. We are not promised good circumstances. If anything, God's Word promises us suffering in this life. As Peter wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. For our part, beloved, we press on. We cling to one another as we all cling to Christ. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Those are not statements about how insignificant trials are. That's a statement about how great the glory is. It's coming. Suffering and then glory. I leave you with this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Amen. Let's pray.